I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Although Black architects attain the same education, perform on the same project teams, and complete similar project types, historically their credentials are questioned and their work often goes unnoticed. We're here to change that. I'm Karen Burton. And I'm Sandra Little. And this is Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E. The podcast where the world can get to know the very significant contributions contemporary and trailblazing architects have made to the profession, the community, and major cities across the U.S. Welcome back to Hidden in Plain Sight. We are... Happy to welcome you to our second episode where we will be talking with the amazing Tiffany Brown. Yes, yes. Another native Detroiter that you cannot ever, ever say she's not from Detroit. She is like the key advertising person for the city of Detroit. So, <laughs> <laughs> Detroit, city of Detroit and Detroit architecture. And uh, she actively recruits architects and designers to come to Detroit to work. Yes. <laughs> so you'll hear about yes. our new planning director. If you if you hear hear him speak, he'll definitely tell you, hey, Tiffany yes. Brown sold me on the city of Detroit and coming here. <laughs> right, right. So uh, Tiffany Brown has a Bachelor of Science in Architecture, a Master of Architecture, and a Master of Business business administration from Lawrence Tech University. And she actively recruits students to go to 
Lawrence Tech or LTU also. She is very proud great school. of her alma mater. <laughs> great school, speaking. Yes, it is a great school and has produced uh, some outstanding architects and designers. Yeah, I have a little bias there, but yeah, Lawrence Tech. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes being, being a Lawrence Tech but grad. That's okay. <laughs> So Tiffany has 20 years of experience in architecture, but, and she is executive director now of the National Organization of Minority Architects, another love of hers, where she always is recruiting people to become members of NOMA. Um, She has been a longtime board director in Detroit. Uh, and then she moved to the national level, and now she has an, the executive director role with the organization. Uh, NOMA focuses on fostering justice and equity in communities of color and supporting African-American architects and architectural designers. In 2017, Tiffany was awarded a grant by the Knight Arts Foundation to launch her 400 Forward a nonprofit organization that focuses on the next 400 women architects uh, with a focus on African-American girls. So um, her nonprofit organization, which she is also the executive director of that one too, focuses on getting more African-American girls and women in the profession and helps them to become licensed architects. Tiffany Uh, has been in several architecture and design publications lately. You probably have seen her on the cover of magazines in many online publications. She was named among Archetizers 100 Women to Watch in Architecture, uh, and she has also received several recognitions and awards from leaders in the industry, including uh, being named Associate of the Year by AIA Detroit, and AIA National, and that's the American Institute of Architects. Uh, as we mentioned, she is a an active recruiter of uh, students for LTU. She's also an adjunct professor there, and she is a community engagement mentor at Lawrence Tech University's Marburger STEM Center. Yeah, that's the short version of what Tiffany <laughs> tells <laughs> right. I mean, we were, uh, you, Tiffany, and myself were all founding members of Number Detroit in um, 2007. And like you said, she served um, as a vice president role for a number of years within Number Detroit. Two of those years, I was president of the organization. So it was just mm-hmm. great working with Tiffany. It's great working with Tiffany again on the National Number Board and the great work that is starting to happen across the professional architecture because of her being in that executive director position. And like I said, Noma has just really catapulted in the last couple of years and her being executive director is part of that as well. You know, as we talk to her, it's just amazing. The leadership role she has taken, you know, not only in Detroit, but nationally in the profession of architecture. And she is someone who had not heard of architecture until late in her high school career. She had not heard of an architect or did not know about architecture as a career until she was about in the 11th grade. So that is why she is so focused on um, getting African-American girls 
an early start and an early introduction into uh, architecture as a profession. Yeah, they say you don't know what you don't know, right? It's it's right. exposure is key to increasing the number of black architects, minorities, and BIPOC in the, in the field. We don't run into relatives who are architects. We don't run into a lot mm-hmm. of relatives who are in the real estate or construction industry. So exposure right. and the programs like 400 Forward are, are definitely needed uh, in order to move that needle. So uh, hats off to Tiffany and the hats, man, a lot of hats. <laughs> a lot of hats. <laughs> a lot of hats. Tiffany wears a lot of hats. So a hard worker. In, uh, but she wears them in style because right. she's always. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Those hats are always worn in style. So, yeah, we are so excited for you to hear today's conversation with Tiffany Brown. Yeah, one one of the questions, Tiffany, we try to ask during each of the podcasts is basically your Detroit story. And with UNESCO, you know, with Detroit being a UNESCO city of design, we think it's important to highlight the legacy of Black architects in that context. So I know asking you about, you know, how important <laughs> design is and how important Detroit is to design is just the person, the right person to ask that question. So tell us your Detroit story and, and how you began your architecture career. Well, my Detroit story, uh, if anybody knows me, they know that I am Detroit born and raised and very proud of being Detroit bred and growing up here made me who I am. It prepared me for being in this field and especially in construction management and construction administration, which is where I ended up taking my interest eventually. But I grew up in love with art and creative writing and woodshop classes in middle school. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do for a career. I just knew that I wanted to be somebody. That was what my teachers and old old principals tell me that's that's what I said when I was little. So um, (laughs) I I had a button that said, I am somebody on like my fifth grade picture. And so when I look back at it, like all these things kind of come back to me now. But I think that is what took me to architecture eventually, even though I wasn't really exposed to it growing up as a career. I ended up going to study architecture and it played a big part in Um, all the full circle moments that I had in my life. It was either Detroit or it was architecture or both. So being able to go back and um, oversee construction of the the housing development where I grew up, being able to work on Detroit public schools, like a new school, Mumford High School, watch it be demolished and rebuilt in the same position, doing demolition uh, at another housing development similar to the one where I grew up at Brewster Douglas. All of those things uh, really exposed me to what I wanted to do. They helped me to realize what what I was passionate about and how I wanted to give back. I didn't really even know that going into architecture that that would be the outcome of my experiences working on different types of projects. But that's my design, my Detroit design story. Detroit made me who I am, and the built environment is what I care about. Just what I observed in the spaces where I lived and where I learned growing up here are um, the reasons why I am in in this industry. I know I heard the story of uh, where you grew up. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like, 
I mean, probably everybody would never know, Tiffany, how, you know, how you carry yourself. But you <laughs> literally, like you said, grew up as a project kid, right? Yeah, I was a project kid. And I'm still a project kid, you know, at, at our, because we, it's, it's where I, my whole family was raised, you know, and it's, it's what I knew as my community. It was a very dangerous place, one of the most dangerous in the city, but it didn't seem like that to us because it was really all we knew. I didn't know that I was poor or without, you know, other things. And you might not believe this, but as a child, I was very shy. I was very uh, just kind of invisible to the world, you know? So a lot of people ask me how I broke out of this shell that I was in. And they, they, there's some magic potion that made me who I am today. But growing up in public housing, especially in the type of housing that there was a wrought iron fence around, and I always talk about this, this black wrought iron fence was representing something symbolically as well as its physical presence. It's just like a cage around the minds of the people that live there, creating uh, dependence on things like welfare and public housing and public assistance. And my, my elementary school was, was inside that fence and my middle school was close by and so was my um, high school too. And it was just this little world, this little box that I was in. And I just knew that there was more out there. I just knew. I don't know how I would experience it or how, like what my future held, but growing up in public housing and, and not really having people come to our schools for career days, like the only professionals I really saw in my life were the teachers and the police. That was it growing up. Mm-hmm. When folks did come to our school and, and talk about careers, which was very rare, they, they always referred to us as disadvantaged youth. And that was something that resonated with me because it was okay, this is telling me that you think that there's a limit to what I'm capable of doing because of because of where I live or what I look like, or I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I didn't like it and it was not encouraging and neither were the spaces around me. They weren't nurturing to my creative mind that I knew I had. And so it's important to me to just really unpack and explore what public housing or publicly assisted housing like means and how it's created because I know how I was impacted by it. And I know I still have family that's impacted by it to this day. And I'm not far removed from it. You know, and it's, it's, I always credit my growth to that. It's not something that people automatically pick up on. That kind of depends where I am, but when <laughs> like, I have to always have like be a chameleon, you know, when, when I was there, I seemed to be the proper one. But when I was out in school or, you know, someplace else growing up in Arizona or something like that with my dad or spending summers there, we were the ghetto ones, you know? So it's like, I was always on the fence. Um, and I, I still feel like I'm on this fence or I'm, I have to be a constant chameleon in, in any situation I am. And some people can tell because some people, some situations have brought it out of me, but mm-hmm. I've learned <laughs> to you know, control it. So That is so, so true though. What like, Tiffany, um, to go back to the place where you grew up when you were working with Hamilton Anderson to do construction administration on the new housing on that site? It's just very nostalgic for me. It was to be back there. And honestly, when we, when we, the only reason we moved out of Herman Gardens was because they were being demolished. And a lot of people stayed close. They, they moved across the street. You know, they, they stayed in the neighborhood because they had every plan on coming back. 
because they knew it was going to be rebuilt. So they wanted to come back. And my grandmother was one of them. She lives there now, uh, and along with a lot of other folks that I grew up with and that my mom grew up with. Um, but to be back there, it was just very meaningful for me. Working on Garden View Estates, working on Montford High School, being a product of DPS, working there with people who would not live there and people who would not send their kids to that school. You know, it just really put things in perspective for me. And I was just looking around like, you know, there's just something wrong with this picture of these project teams and these construction teams and the people who are coming here, like they don't really care about what they're doing. They're just here to make money off of a project, you know, but it was, it was different for me because it was where I was born and just this whole like kind of rebirth of that development and the rebirth of uh, my approach to what I want to do in my life and even rebirth with, with my daughter. I was, I was pregnant walking that construction site with, with Bryn and the place where I grew up that she never would know how her mom grew up the, uh, poor the way that we did. She thinks she's a, a rich kid. I don't know why, but <laughs> you know, I, I ran across a picture of myself coming down some stairs and it was the winter time when I was pregnant with her, when I really started the show and I had on this big Carhartt coat and people didn't know I was pregnant. And I had on a hard hat and I was out there in the mud. Like it was just 30, 40 acres of just um, mud at one point. And I had on these big rain boots up to my knees and people didn't know I was pregnant, but I was out there, you know, just in a place where it was not meant for me to sprout out from and be into an industry like this. It just was not something likely for a kid growing up there. It was not a place likely for me to ever see myself going to Paris to study abroad for architecture, standing in front of the Mona Lisa, going to Spain. I never dreamt that I would be able to do any of those things growing right, up. Right, right. So that's what I was going to say. Tell, tell, tell your story of, uh, you know, coming from the best school in the in the world for, for the both of us, right? So Lawrence Technological University. That's right. <laughs> we're we're like, right, we're like, can I backseat on this episode? you <laughs> <laughs> know. But tell us about your experience at Lawrence Tech. Yeah, like you said, going abroad and how it just changed you and, and really helped to uh, uh, build you up in this, in this field. So getting to the 12th grade and not really knowing what I wanted to do as a career, um, I was actually considering being an animator and working for Disney because I was always drawing Disney movies, cartoon characters, people in my class, all those types of things. And um, I got there. Well, I actually got there because someone from Lawrence Tech, it was just a recruiter. She came to Northwestern where I was. And Northwestern was my third high school. I went to three high schools, but Northwestern is where I graduated from. And so she, um, a lady came there. She she was a black lady. I was in an auditorium full of people who could not care less what she was talking about. And it was like she was there to talk directly to me. I remember just feeling like I was the only person in that room, you know, like I should just um try to learn more about this as a career. I didn't even know anything about it, but I started there in the fall at Lawrence Tech. And I've, Lawrence Tech has been a part of my life ever since I graduated high school, three degrees later, and even as faculty. But getting there as a Detroit Public School student um, with almost a 4.0 GPA graduating, I was completely unprepared when I got there. I definitely felt out of place. I definitely felt I, like I was behind my peers who had parents who were architects or who um, knew uh, what architects do and they knew about the licensure process. I had no clue about that till three years l- later, you know? 
And even what an elevation was or what a scale did, I had no clue, you know? So it was tough and it was, it was, there were a lot of times when I didn't know how I would get through it, but I remember I just kept telling myself that it had to be done. And uh, about three years later, uh, I got a job at working at Hamilton Anderson, where I met the one and only Sandra Little, who was on the spot. <laughs> I think she might have been the first black woman architect. Is that right, Sandra? That I that I met before. I, I think I remember you had you said it the first <laughs> and second, but I know I know how you feel. It's like you know you pick on this as a career field, and you have never even seen somebody who looks like you. Um, never taught by someone. Right. Didn't have an instructor. Didn't have classmates that looked like me. There were students there in other programs, but not in architecture. So. Uh, it was it was not an easy task to get to a Bachelor of Science um, at Lawrence. Like I, I've had professors there that discouraged me from continuing. Like maybe this wow. is for you kind of thing because I was just on a different wavelength as far as the way that I learned and the things that I knew versus my classmates. And I just I stuck with it. You you uh you had it harder than I did. I mean uh when I went to Lawrence, at least I had Damon. Damon Promise was my classmate and ended up becoming my business partner later on. And it was a couple of other, uh, you know, African-Americans that were in the program at the time that I still talk to to this day. Right. And that's tough. You know, it's already tough going to the predominantly white college, Mm -hmm. but also not having uh, someone who looks like you to even go through the class with and kind of to figure out some things. That's, that's pretty tough. Yeah. You know, at times I, wish I had gone to an HBCU because I just feel like my experience would have been different. Um, In hindsight now, like knowing what an HBCU graduate goes through in our industry also, I don't, well, I probably would change it now just because I like to be, I need to be around people that look like me. I need to see representation. It's just what I need. And I think others need it too. And um, I I do have really good friends that I graduated college with that I'm still close to to this day. Uh, and you know, there's, there's, we, we still get together. We still hang out. My, my first studio instructor is also, is actually the person that invited me to speak at Stantec tomorrow. And she was one of few women that I've seen in the, in, um, as a professor at Lawrence Tech, but there was a different experience coming out of Detroit public schools and going to a predominantly white institution. I have to, I have to give a little hat off to Lawrence Tech then because like they, they did outreach to you in Mm -hmm. school. That's right. And the reason I went to Lawrence Tech as well is because they sent uh, to all the counselors uh, this pre-college architecture program. And that's what got me to Lawrence. I took that in my senior year. Because I was like, I was studying architecture. I, I was like doing research papers on Mies van der Rohe and different architects. But I still was like, can I do this? And that class, that helped me feel comfortable going into Lawrence Tech. So they 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 were doing outreach and oh, they did outreach because you 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 were in school in was it Ann Arbor or were you in Detroit? No, no, I was in uh, I was out in uh, Westland. I went to Wayne Memorial Westland, High okay. School. Yeah, yeah, Wayne Memorial High School. So they they were doing outreach. They were coming out to to people and talking. So that that's that's important. So anybody listening, that's important to to visit schools and let and let kids know mm-hmm. about architecture as a career option. So definitely, nobody ever came to my school to talk. Well, elementary school to talk about architecture but by the time I got to to high school we had a drafting class but no architects came to our school that I I'm aware of yeah it it was uh I I do credit Lawrence Tech a lot for my professional development um 
I, I did not have the opportunity to go to HBCU tours and to just visit. A, like being at Lawrence Tech's campus was really my first time being on a college campus. And I just was not exposed to that. I don't know how I missed it in college. I know in high school, there must have been some trips to colleges, you know. So just I was I'm a first generation college graduate. And so I didn't really have the push from home to go to college. And I had gone to three high schools. So um, I can't really say that there was someone consistently in my school making sure that I was applying to college either. I'm just someone who happened to not slip through the cracks and um, made my like one person out of an auditorium full of students that made my way to, you know, on that on that path. Yeah, I always say that too. Feel like you blessed, right? You like you made it through a <laughs> lot of extreme circumstances. Probably what two hundred people in that auditorium that made it out, and, and they got the message too. So, but you were driven to do so. You were determined to move on. The determination was there. It was mostly uh, when I think back to that. It's I just knew that I wanted a better life, and I wanted to to learn more about the world and and to be the best me you know I didn't I had no direction or no idea where I would end up but it still comes with some negative effects I think because of the way I grew up and a lot of people that are not here anymore or you know it sounds cliche but a lot of people that I cared about are dead or in jail and so at times there is survivor's remorse or imposter syndrome or like Mm -hmm. all, all these things that people don't see when they see me because they think that I have like it all together, but I'm affected a lot in like many ways mentally by the the wide spectrum of like my life experiences, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and a lot of it I'm not even realizing until now. Like yeah. I just kind of like buried it, you know. So so how was it coming up? Like you were coming out of Lawrence Tech, like I said, you were traveling internationally and you started to grow, right? So how how did that feel when you first started that? Uh, into professional world and your first job and how did that make how, how was that I feel like I was going with the flow um I was I was I knew that I had a lot of important puzzle pieces floating around me like the people that I was introduced to the places that I'd gone the things I'd seen or learned and I didn't know how to place these puzzle pieces you know I was just kind of like letting them and I, I struggled with that too because there's a big part of me that wants to control everything, every aspect of my life. I need to plan for everything, you know? And so to just kind of like let things happen was, was tough, but getting a job um, in an architecture firm, especially one that was black owned and I'm hired by, Sybil hired me and I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for her and Rainey, believing that I, I, I had no experience. I had nothing to do, like bring to that for her. So I started at the front desk and I had some experience in administration because I was that's what I was working at before. And I was able to just work my way up into leading my own projects over the years. So I pretty much grew up at Hamilton Anderson. I was there for 11 years. And at that time, I had never done anything in my life for 11 years. I, I was just trying to let things unfold because I didn't really have the guidance that a lot of people might have had, like in mentors and things like that really until I got to Hamilton Anderson. It was, it, and you were there like at a pinnacle time, right? It was like the number of African-American architects that worked at Hamilton Anderson. I know like starting before I came to, I know at least 
uh, at least four to five years after I left. That it was a lot of people now today. If people you know hear the names, the name drop, there were a lot of African Americans that that were at that firm at that time. I feel very lucky to have had that experience because I was able to work at a Black-owned firm around so many Black people. And I loved to come to work. And I loved the projects that we were working on. And we all loved to be there. We would hang out with each other after work. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. So it, it was just a great place to be. You know, it was a great time, like you said, to be there. And I was just fortunate to have formed the relationships that I formed there. And one of those relationships was with Noma. Being part of yes. the founding of Noma, Noma Detroit, which pretty much consisted of Hamilton Harris and employees, you know, is if that was a pivotal time for me too, because I didn't have Noma at Lawrence Tech as a student. Yeah. So my experience was a little different. I never, until I came to Detroit, I didn't work with any Black people. And I was always the only woman in architecture or engineer or whatever I was doing. Um, so it was like finding family, you know, when I came to Detroit and to Smith Group and to Hamilton Anderson or, or Urban Works, uh, where I worked with Roland Day. Yeah, it, Roland too was, was someone that I met while I was at Hamilton Anderson, but that's part of my Detroit design story also. And, you know, it was just awesome to be able to, to work there and, and get my start there. And I was just starting in residential construction, um, working on Garden View Estates, working on Brewster demolition, working in Flint on housing, working on Brush Park when it was, uh, you know, $30,000 a condo. And now it's like, uh, <laughs> half a million dollars. Rob Saxon was someone that I was working closely with on that on that project, and he was trying to give me understand stair details, and I was so confused all day, every day. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was something that I was able to do, and that I'm grateful for the the people that I met and people that are still in my life, um, and the relationships that I still have, you know, with with just about everybody from that firm, so including Rainey. You grew up in Hamilton Anderson while Ham- Hamilton Anderson was growing. Uh, and what was it like to move on to a larger, more national or international firm? So with Hamilton Anderson being a design firm, it was a smaller firm, but it was pretty large, though, for, right. for right. a firm type at that time. We had a bunch of people. Yeah, it was. There were 140 at, yeah, at, the, at the peak, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember getting as, as high as 176 at one point when I was there. So I was there for you know all that time, but it was uh, the, I knew that it, and it was hard for me to leave because of my relationship with with Rainey. But I knew that there was something that I was not getting there. Like I, I just had this interest. I was doing a lot of CA work at Hamilton Anderson eventually, and it's a design firm, so. I, I wanted to get more experience in, in construction. I wanted to get more experience um, in some different project types, like hospitals and things that Hamilton Arson wasn't doing that much of at that time. So that was how I left. And then going into Smith Group, where it's a national firm, offices all over the, the country. It's the, the longest running ever architecture and engineering firm in the country. It is uh, interdisciplinary. It was something like everything about it was new to me. You know, working at Hamilton Harrison, 
civil engineering, plumbing, everything we needed was consultants. But to be at a firm that had everything under one roof was, I saw the benefits of that where we, from start to finish, are sitting next to everybody on that team and everyone's experts in, in their in their um, areas. And so I think that was when I realized that, like how well I could thrive in like a corporate setting. And the segue to that was being, uh, in business development at Hamilton Harrison for a while, and then um, realizing that I was also interested in the business end of architecture too, not only just construction, but business too. So I ended up getting an MBA from Lawrence to supplement my master of architecture so that I could be more versatile because our, our architecture degrees are very specific to that. And um, being at Smith Group and starting out in CA, and then transitioning to project management, all of these things are just kind of like, they all unfolded like a story. You know, they just all, they were just all stepping stones that I didn't see coming. And, you know, now when I try to like describe my journey, it's just the way everything happened, just kind of like, like, bam, 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 clockwork meant to be, you know? Mm-hmm. So eventually um, I realized that just working in an, in a national firm, they're international. I think they've got, you know, one or two offices that are like starting out um, in other countries, but it was definitely a very different experience from working in a a design firm. And you need that to be a well-rounded person, you know, working in this industry. I was able to go there and just grow and observe and have some mentors that didn't look like me that there were some times it was a challenge too, like, my my capabilities were absolutely doubted and questioned while I was there. And so, but with, with certain people. So, but luckily I was able to form relationships with some folks in upper management that saw what the same thing that Sybil saw in me at Hamilton Anderson and wanted to expose me to some opportunities. And that's when I realized that I wanted to be in executive leadership. So what are some of the projects you worked on while at Smith Group? I started out working on Ford Motor Company's headquarters in Dearborn, and and we were working on those suites where their their leadership, there was kind of like tenant improvement, like the top floor for the leadership there for Ford. And I was doing CA there, so I was mostly in the field at the site. I also worked on GM there while I was at Smith Group. GM, some of these projects with, with these types of clients really shows how these clients with that's just got millions of dollars to throw at a project. They just, they, they want to work you to the bone. And sometimes the firm doesn't really protect the employee from the fatigue that they end up, you know, having to like work 50, 60 hours a week. Like I couldn't do that, you know, and work with a team of people that you would get to a CD's phase and they want to start the design all over again, you know? And so they, they send you into in there to do that. And, by that time, I was a project manager and I had all these these um, uh, younger employees like coming to me about, I need your help in CA or I need you to tell me how to say no or I, uh, I'm unhappy working on this project, period. So it, it was, uh, there was a lot of valuable experience um, on those types of projects and having those types of clients. But I think the the most important one for me at, at that firm was working on at the Colby Young Building and partnering with the Sandra Little uh, and <laughs> Centric design studios on that project. It, it was it was very tough, kind of like being pushed into the deep end of the pool, just dropped into the project management seat on that project and 
just just having to prove myself to to Sharon and you know to the rest of the comp like the the commissioners there that they know that I was put in that position because they needed to diversify that team, but they also made it like she made it her business. Sharon Madison made it her business to make sure that I had the support and the training, and like I was not set up for failure by putting it being put in that position. So you know, though being able to work on that project was was meaningful. Uh, and just learning about the responsibilities of being a management manager and managing people and managing projects and managing budgets and managing schedules and, and construction. And uh, it was a different project type for me, a new project type for me. And uh, half the time I was really questioning myself if I was able to do that. Like I hadn't never done project management before. So I was just going straight from CA to that. But at a firm like that, I think it's the requirements to be a project manager would be different from from others where you're required to be a licensed architect and they have all these stipulations. And but working out working at a firm like that, where it's interdisciplinary, you have structural engineers who are PMs, you have interior designers who are PMs, you have civil engineers who are PMs, and you have me having multiple master's degrees and like no one else had that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was my ticket there. And and yes, people did question how I got there or how well I would do because of the way I got into that position. But that was what I had that was unique about me that no one else had had two two masters uh, or even had a business degree. So how did you feel afterwards at the ribbon cutting when the mayor was there and, and, you know, opening up the new entryway and and at the end? I think it was, it really made me see that maybe my time is complete. Kira Smith Group, because, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one another one of those full circle moments, because around that time, I did transition to other work. Not long after that, the pandemic happened. And so we were working on from home and, you know, the murder of George Floyd and just being in my house, having work in my house, having to check in on these, I want to make sure you're working type of like, that's what it felt like to me, calls where we were on Zoom and now we're on Teams and just having to be in front of the computer and at, at my house that used to be my pe- place of peace. And now it's where work is, it's where church is, it's where gymnastics is, it's where everything is in here. And, you know, so there's, I was closed in and I was really starting to like just suffer mentally and after the murder of George Floyd and, and after I wrote, I was just watching how different firms and different folks and different people were responding to things and and how they were advocating or not advocating or how they were being vocal or not being vocal. I started to realize like I my energy is not being like I don't feel like I'm being effective to my for my community. I don't feel like I'm contributing to the change that needs to happen that has been put on the stage now in front of the world that we always knew was there. But now, now it's being acknowledged, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I was like, um, it was a semi-voluntary leave of absence, you know, with with that because they wanted me to come and work on a project. And I was like, I just cannot mentally do it. I can't even come back to work right now, you know? Um, and I got the call a couple of times from them to, to work on. Um, they needed a PM for this project. And it, there were a couple of great projects that... Uh, if I was in a different mindset, I would have been happy to do it. Just, I was really conflicted. And then when Noma put out, uh, actually Kim was at my house when Noma put out the brave statement on, on Noma's position with what was happening in the world uh, socially. Uh, we both just kind of had some epiphanies that like in my living room that day, 
you know, and I was like, I, just, I can't be at a firm um, working on things I don't care about right now, I'm working on offices and stuff. Mm-hmm. Working on um, major corporate offices where people have lots of money to, to throw at <laughs> and, the and they they are carrying on with these meetings as if as if this this trial is not happening or if this riot is not happening. And I could not because it was affecting me directly, like in ways that I didn't expect, you know, and I just I couldn't do it. So that was just I think when I realized it was time for me to make a transition. Um, I think that's one of the questions that y'all asked me about was like, I, I had to, it was, it was time for me to shift gears. I, it was very clear to me. Hey there, architecture enthusiast, Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability. Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to, we have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Today's Detroit City of Design Spotlight is giving you a little context of a lot of the universities and schools that we talk about in this podcast. A lot of us here in Detroit don't fall. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So we actually go to school in our our great state of Michigan and uh, end up practicing and working uh, in this space as well. So I can start out with one of the schools of architecture we talked about briefly. And you heard so far Tiffany speak about Lawrence Technological University. Their school of architecture is in Southfield, Michigan, which is just outside north of the city of Detroit. So just outside the city borders. The mantra of the school is theory and practice. Uh, so Lawrence Tech is uh, one of the schools of the architecture that's known actually to produce the most licensed uh, architects that come out of the school because it is a very practical school of architecture. There's usually two types of school. It's practical uh, and then uh, theoretical based uh, schools of architecture. Karen, I'll let you talk about your alma mater. Well, I attended University of Michigan. Uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, U of M has the two plus two plus two program. So going to University of Michigan gave me an opportunity to study several things before I got into the architecture profession. I was very interested and still am (laughs) very interested in a lot of things that are go hand in hand with architecture. So I started out in civil engineering. 
but my first love was architecture and that is where I moved to next to get my Bachelor of Science degree. So I got to study, you know, engineering. I took uh, real estate development courses, took a lot of art history and architectural history. And all of that uh, helped me to understand architecture and how it worked into how it worked together uh, with other professions and fields. I really appreciate the well-roundedness and the exploration that I could do in my degree with the University of Michigan. Uh, U of M is the oldest university in Michigan and uh, one of the largest, if not, I don't think it's larger than Michigan State, but one of the largest student population-wise. And we have lots of well-known alumni from the university. Yes. Uh, a lot of people that we are interviewing here on Hidden in Plain Sight go back and teach at the university, even if they were not students there. The University of Michigan just has a, a great resource of professionals, and uh, it's just a great resource <laughs> for the guest for, faculty and uh, the, students that yeah. want to write, right? Guest faculty, the deans who have been uh, uh, dean of the school and, and department heads of the school. Just a, a wonderful experience. And I am always amazed. Uh, my husband has taught me the power of wearing. University of Michigan paraphernalia <laughs> and clothing. You know, I don't care what city we go to. If you've got a U of M shirt on, somebody's going to pass by you and say, go blue. So that that network yeah. uh, and learning to use that network is just, I, I've learned it's very powerful. Yes, yes. Very powerful. So yeah, coming at our top 10 university, so, you know, University of Michigan. Yes, yes. yes. Another school that we have here, um, um, within the state is uh, Kendall College of Art and Design at Ferris State University. Uh, we were very fortunate. That's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So Grand Rapids is kind of in the northwest side of the state of Michigan in the lower peninsula. And we had the opportunity to do a lecture there for uh, Noir Design Party presenting our work of African-American, the history of African-American architects on the campus, uh, one of kind of the first in-person lectures we've done <laughs> since the pandemic. Uh, but their school of architecture is a, their master's program is accredited school of architecture. So uh, a lot of the the firms that are out of the Grand Rapids area are, have students that actually are graduates of this university. And just like I said, kind of the anchor to the west side of the state. It's a, like I said, roughly like a three hour drive from um, Detroit to Grand Rapids but still one of our spotlight schools uh, for, for architecture. And then another on the west side of the state, more of the southwest side, is Andrews University, a small university founded or a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They have an architecture and interior design college, uh, and they are very focused on architecture as a service to God. Uh, and you can see a lot of that on their website. We know of one or two people in our NOMA community who are graduates of Andrews University. And we are going to do some more research and find out more about Andrews and their impact on architecture 
not only in the state of Michigan, but nationally. And then we'll, as well. we'll put our plug in for Andrews. If you definitely, we would love to come do a lecture. Uh, Noir Design Party would love to come do a lecture at Andrews University. So please reach out to us. We've pretty much uh, talked at each of the universities we talked about. But one of our great supporters is our Michigan NAB accredited architectural program is the uh, University of Detroit Mercy, their school of architecture. It is located in the city limits of the city of Detroit on the northwest side. Of, of Detroit. They have an accredited MART program. They've been one of, like I said, our best supporters as far as Noir Design Partie with our project, as well as NOMA Detroit chapter and the mm. work that we've been doing there. Um, uh, we have NOMA members who are uh, on the faculty at University of Detroit Mercy. And you're going to hear on this podcast a number of interviews we have from University of Detroit Mercury graduates. Uh, but yeah, we have a we have a faculty position there that um, basically supports our NOMA National Student Design Competition every year. Part of the requirement for that faculty member is to be a NOMA member. Uh, and then it supports mm-hmm. uh, those students. And you get NOMA members and minority architects that come in and do critiques with the students and actually spend time with them. So giving them exposure to... What we always talk about, right? The people you can't see, um, you don't see a lot of minorities. But during that class, you will see uh, a lot of minority guest critique members come in as well as the mm-hmm. faculty. And we appreciate U of D Mercy so much for we've had exhibits yeah. uh, in the architecture school in their exhibit space. Noir Design Party has had lectures and panel discussions as well. And most recently, we partnered with U of D and Live 6 to present about architects and developers on the six-mile, a couple-mile block of six-mile in that corridor and the work that Black architects and Black developers are doing together to renovate and reinvigorate that area. That recording is available online if you want to check it out. You can uh, check out that panel discussion on Live 6 Facebook page and website. It's a, it was a great mm-hmm. conversation um, that the development is happening there. So, yeah, we wanted to just give you a snapshot as we interview people um, on this podcast. You're going to hear these university name drop. And but we wanted to let you give you some context to each of these universities as you listen to future episodes. And now back to Tiffany Brown. So that that that, that is the question. Like, how did you become the executive director? <laughs> no one national, <laughs> national organization, minority architect, fellow architecture firm. So that was. That was the question. And after that brave statement, after your mental break, what happened next and how did you get there? Um, so I have been on the board for Noma National for, for a long time. And I was um, vice president of Noma Detroit for probably 200 years, it felt like. But <laughs> uh, so I was already um, involved with Noma. And it really was a requirement that I had wherever I went to work. Because of my involvement with Noma, I, I need you to be able to support my time off, support my travel, support the mission of this organization because it's important to me. So I always say Noma, uh, like me, was finding Wakanda. I went to a predominantly white school and, you know, just I think finding Noma and, and seeing that sea of people that I'd never seen, never knew existed. It was, it was like, I can't let go of this. So, so, so was your first NOMA conference the same one that was my first one, the Orlando one? Is that your first NOMA At Disney? Yeah. Yeah, that was my first NOMA conference. So, so that was my first one as well. Yeah, I, I didn't go to a single seminar while I was, while I was, <laughs> I was, I was in Disney World. 
And I was I was at the awards banquet because that was a time when Hamilton Harrison was winning all the NOMA awards. Like every no, it was the Moody Nolan of you know like two thousand and nine or ten or something like that. But um, I was I was there and I was on this task force to to try to find Omen executive director, and we had gone through three executive directors in three years, having to having to you know let them each each of them go, people that I. Thought you know saw as very capable doing that job. I was I was doing what I could to help them succeed because they were black women, you know. And I'm like, I've been on this board. I know how this organization works. I'm doing what I can to help them. But all the time, I was thinking I could do this, but I didn't think that was my ministry right then. I was like, <laughs> I should be at a firm. I'm not, you know, I'm at a firm. This is what I'm doing. So uh, when when the brave statement was released, and we also had recently released our ED. Kim did ask me to, you know, just like, what do you think about just kind of standing in as interim for a while and helping us sort things out while we explore a new ED? And that went really well. I just, I realized there were a lot of, you know, Noma's been a volunteer organization for 50 years. So everything is everywhere on people's personal emails, personal drives. Like it was to go from being in a corporate environment to then um, going to someplace where there's no structure no, you know, real procedures and standards and things like that in place, things that I love, you know, and I need to operate in a workplace, having to create that now, you know, and so I was like, well, so much time had gone by that I decided I would throw my ring in the hat when it was time to do the ED search. And so when that time came, they had a couple meetings behind closed doors without me. Um, and decided that they the money that it would cost to, to do a search for an ED, they wanted to invest in me and train me to fulfill that role. So this was something I didn't know. Like the whatever percentage of that salary, 30% of it goes toward the ED search. Like it, it's a big chunk that, of mm-hmm. money that you spend searching for a position like that. So mm-hmm. they they decided to just, you know, instead of doing that, we need this to be someone from within the organization that knows how NOMA works. And um, I just kind of made that made another segue into it. So you're still using that MBA degree. You're still using your architecture degree. You're still mm-hmm. using all of that mm-hmm. in, this, in this new role. And I'm doing something what I love. Not only did you know how NOMA worked, but you understood architects. Mm-hmm. Not just architecture, but architects and how they work and how they think. Um, did any of the previous executive directors have an architecture background? No, they, a couple of them had, um, one of the, our first one had, she hadn't, she was a business major. She had an MBA and then the next one had, you know, a lot of DEI uh, experience in, in DEI and she was also NOMA affiliated mm-hmm. and the, the next one, uh, no, none of them had, um, architectural backgrounds, but it was, I think necessary. Sometimes you can have an organization that hires someone from outside of the industry, um, mm-hmm. but I, the dynamic of how normal works because we are so familial because it is such a this is my family type of environment with us we're mm-hmm. close like because of no I can go to any city in, in in the country and have a place to sleep you know mm-hmm. like, these are my my close friends my family and sometimes that's a detriment with me being in this position now <laughs> but right it was a struggle for me to leave that corporate environment at that national firm um, and it, it took a stern talking to by one of my friends who was like, it's like you're trying to be the best black person at a place that is led by white people. 
And some of them there don't want you next to them at the boardroom table. You know, and that was the case, you know. So even with your credentials, even with my credentials, but would use the fact that I was not licensed to keep me from uh, being elevated to associate and other things while I was watching other people who didn't look like me be elevated without a license. You know, what is what is the thing? What is the reason besides uh, what I look like that I can't have the same Thing happening, you know, I'm, you see me as this expert in these other parts of like this DEI expert, and I'm representing the firm, flying around the country, doing all these things, speaking at conferences, you know, doing all these things. But when it's time to elevate me, I'm being held back from from that, you know. So I don't have to do that now because now I can go and be in an executive executive leadership. That's what I wanted to do at that firm and at mm-hmm. and at the firm before that, you know, being a student. And working in um, Hamilton Harrison, it was really hard for me to fight my way out of that student box at that firm. Oh yeah, yeah, that is that is very true. I mean, people will leave a firm, right, and and to, to almost for promotion because yeah. you are just looked at in a certain as a certain role, and that takes some consciousness from leadership to say, wait a minute, no, this person is growing. I'm going to try to make sure this person keeps growing, and if they're not paying attention to that, it's almost like that person getting pigeonholed and doing details all it's the just- time. Right, a perpetual student. Yeah, yeah. So you get you get stuck in the student role. So, but now you're you're at the table at a larger table because like as soon as you come into the ED role, right now, Noma is at a larger yes. stage because of everything that's happened. Now you're like, you know, how how is it like being in conversations of how to move the profession forward, and then you're the voice for an organization that kind of heads up that minority arm of that. And not just the voice for the organization, but you're interacting with all of these large firms, right? It's not so much the firms. Uh, Obviously, every firm, every company wanted to extend its arm to NOMA and partner with NOMA because they needed to show or wanted to take part in making some type of change and the DEI issues that we were having in our in, in architecture. So we were being, and we still are being pulled in from every direction and stretched in. Um, and so, but but the the other part of that is now we're at we're part of this uh, alliance of organizations that shape and control the industry from the top, you know. And so Noma now has its seat at this table of alliance organizations. It's 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 where the six it used to be the six collaterals, but uh, we recently just kind of come up with a name for the group, the Architecture Alliance. And at that table is NOMA. It's the ACSA, which is the Collegiate Schools of Architecture. It's, um, of course, the AIA, AIA and AIAS, who are two different entities. The NAB, who um, accredit all of the colleges. Um, and then it's NCAR, who controls licensure. So we are on these calls with them. We're in meetings with them now. We're at their board meetings. We're at their conferences. As presidents and executive directors having regular calls on how we can work together and form a um, cohesive mission to make the change um, that we, we want to see. So it is very meaningful for me to be at that table because I remember just I would be kicking and screaming at the firms I was at like I'm capable of doing this this is what I can bring to this company and now I can do that on a a larger platform and use the platform that I've built up to share my story and to talk about my experiences because really I'm, I'm a major advocate for storytelling especially in architecture with 
making change in architecture and sharing what I've gone through and, and things that I've experienced um, because people need to hear that. And, you know, it's, it's just, they get a better understanding of our point of view. Um, at times it is exhausting. Noma's at this table and, and now we represent every black person or every struggle or, you know, we're there to represent everything and everybody and be all things to these orgs. And so it, there was a lot of fatigue there for us, but I'm, I'm really proud that I can see that they are taking the steps and it's going to take some time, but they're taking the steps to make the changes. And from within, we can't just drop, you know, six black people on the board of NCARB's national board because there's a process to get there just like there's a process to get on Noma's board nationally. So oh. now we're learning what their process is and kind of holding their feet to the fire to be transparent about what that process is and how they're supporting someone like us to be successful in those roles. So yeah, it is these groups of folks like these LFRT, like large firm roundtable, like these things, these are things that have been existing for 30, 40 years, I never knew about until now, you know? Mm-hmm. And so now to be at this table and having these discussions and really being a sponge and offering my expertise in the best way that I can and working with Kim and Jason and Pascal and just folks who are rock stars and they are my friends, you know, it's meaningful for me. I didn't see AIA hiring a black woman to be their CEO. I just did not think they were ready to do that. And when I found out that they hired Lakeisha Woods, I was blown away. And proud of them because it showed that there's people there that they're like, okay, we're going to do this. And there's going to be, you know, flack and there's going to be complaints and there's going to be people who are not happy, but this is the move we need to make to to do what we need to do. So there there are two initiatives that I know about that's come out of the Architectural Alliance. One is the baseline for belonging with NCARB. And the other one uh, is the 2030 challenge. So 2030 I don't know diversity challenge. Challenge 2030 diversity challenge. Those two. So can you tell us a little bit about those two initiatives? So the 2030 diversity challenge is uh, something that Kim and Robert Easter and a couple other folks uh, came up with to double the number of Black architects by the year 2030. And I think that we, in order for us to accomplish that, it's 27, 28. Um, people need to be licensed every month for us to to reach that challenge. So now with the alliances, everyone's trying to work together on how we can make that happen, what what they each can do to contribute to that. And we're still working on what that means. I I think it's really pointing to what the pipeline is because it sounds like education is something that we all share. Like all of these orgs have our own silos, you know, their academia, there's there's licensure, there's accreditation, there's NOMA, there's AIA, like every, we're all, we all have different missions. Uh, but I think the mission that we all have is that early exposure is what is gonna really contribute down the line to making the, the change that we need to see in this in this industry. So uh that's that same that same kind of uh outreach like we were talking about earlier with with uh Lawrence Tech and and, and, and meeting you in that auditorium. Catching that, yeah, catching that student is what's really going to move the needle. Yeah, you know, we've done this multiple times. Whitney Young said this loud and clear 50-something years ago. He said something needs to be done now or we will be sorry later. And we are doing an injustice to our communities if we don't do something now. And that was, that was then. And here we are, we're still at the same percentage, you know. So being here and in the midst of that anniversary, I need to see solutions 
I need to see some answers. I need to see some action from these organizations. Uh, and really that is what's going to take me to baseline on belonging. And CAR um, wanted to do this survey with NOMA because they want to try to understand why Black people are falling off the path to licensure, why we're not passing exams, all these things. And so uh, they're putting out all of these reports about experience in firms, firm culture, education, the examinations themselves. Are they being biased in the way that they ask questions? So, so they, they have all these initiatives taking place right now where they, they needed feedback from NOMA members, and they still do. I know it's a, a bit of a hard pill to, to swallow to just kind of be on this stage where people are talking about, well, research shows that Black women are not getting licensed. Yes, we know that. And we want to know why. Well, we can tell you why. We know the answers why. You know, and I'm at I'm on this call. Like, I can tell you exactly why I'm not licensed yet because I'm one of those people, you know. There are so many things that they don't consider. Like, it's just our the culture of, like, us having to take care of our the way that we raise our families and the way that we have to, like, we, we are responsible for you're, you're the oldest girl and, and you're you're watching all these kids and you you're not exposed to college. And like there are all these factors, you know, we're, we're graduating with multiple degrees, but we're not paid or promoted at the same rate as our peers who don't look like us. And so how are we supposed to pay back our college loans? How are we supposed to pay for these resources that we need to pass exams? How are we supposed to pay for the exams when we have bills to pay and families to raise and loans to pay back from trying to go to college? You know, so um, you mentioned it, too. You know, people don't you have the credentials, but people don't want to recognize. That's right. That you have those credentials. Yeah, I, there are times when I would be at those meetings at uh, when I was working on that for a project, and I would be sitting next to somebody that was with, that I graduated with at, from Lawrence, mm-hmm. and he's working, you know, for Ford, and uh, he's about two eighty-year-old guys from from retiring to being the next CEO of, and you know, in in that department, and that is not something that would be available to me, and mm-hmm. I know that I have more experience than, than he does, and I know that I have more degrees than he does but this is my life you know this is me and having 400 forward and ushering in the next generation of designers and architects and telling them to come into uh, an industry that treats them this way you know so I've I've had my own moments in time where I was like what the heck am I doing here is this really where I belong is this really baseline on belonging like people don't know that I've had these conversations with NCARB and they've asked us to do things like make videos or, or, you know, just kind of, they wanted to write something for us to read just to try to promote what they're doing. And I couldn't bring myself to do it because I I can't pass your exams and I'm suspicious as to why, you know, or I, I feel some kind of way about the questions that you're asking and you're not asking about the question that you are asking and the ones that you are not, you know, I, I have experience in neighborhoods that need, to be safe and need, you know, just it's a different type of concern that I have. And that's not being acknowledged in the way that you ask these questions. It's a different perspective, right? It's like, it's like, you know, you have some projects that come into certain neighborhoods and they fail. And it's because who designed that project was not from the neighborhood or early on before now community engagement is a big thing to do. Had not even engaged the community and when they were talking about designing this facility. So it's, it's perspective. And then when you get to their exam that's written, you know, it's a different perspective that you're coming to it with. So 
I, I mean, I know it's frustrating, but you are helping people to become aware of that difference, right? It's like, but it, but it's tiring. Like that's the other thing, right? We're fighting the DEI, Absolutely. the DEI it, battle. It's, it's an tiring. added stressor that again, other people who are taking the exams, other people in the industry don't have. Absolutely, you, you're carrying additional weight that other people don't have to. You know, they can go home and lay down at night and not think about some of the other things that you have to carry. Yeah, they don't. They don't have to. One of those things they don't have to think about their family member being shot down in the street because of what they look like. Mm-hmm. You know, so right. there are so many things that um, I think oh, for a long time it's been you know eyes closed, ears closed, mouth just they have tried to um, not see, and now there's a little bit of effort there to to say, okay, what can we do? What are we doing wrong? Um, let's bring in some third party to, to tell us what we're doing wrong. So um, being in this position, I'm able to, to to use that voice again and my my platform and my experience to tell them what they're doing wrong. And I'm more than happy to do that. So, and, and it's gotten me further with things, with with the change that, you know, we're all hoping to to make here. So I think it's it was just a necessary change. As these, these are things that unfortunately with COVID, a lot of people lost their lives and, and their jobs and their homes and a lot of those things. But there are some of us that had uh, to go through that to change our lives around and do what the world, become what the world needs mm-hmm. you know, to be better. So and I'm one of those people. So let me backtrack just a little bit. You mentioned Kim two or three times. So I want to say Kim Dowdell. Mm-hmm. Uh, former president of National Organization of Minority Architects, and now candidate for president of American right. Institute of Architects, uh, and, and a Detroiter. And a Detroiter. And a yep. Detroiter. Yes. So one thing that is remarkable for me is imagining Kim becoming president of the AIA, while the AIA has a Black woman as CEO, while mm-hmm. NOMA has a Black woman as president, because Pascal is incoming president of NOMA, sure. while yeah. NOMA has a Black woman as ED. Mm-hmm. And that's history right there. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm just very proud to know them and even be part of just, you know, that that group of people and just to watch her grow and watch her her be as determined as she is. Like she's had a lot happen. She lost her father uh, from COVID, you know, and mm-hmm. she, she she took Noma into a completely different tax bracket financially while she was president during a pandemic. We've never been in the position we've been in now financially. We've never been at the tables we've been at now. The partnerships that we've had, the amount of members that we've had tripled in size while she was president a couple of times. So it, it was, uh, I, I just, I hope to speak it into existence. We'll know, I don't know, in a couple of weeks now what that yeah. outcome will be, but yeah, it'll it'll just be amazing to see that both of our organizations having black women leading leading things. So that that's a great vision. That was that I mean uh, <laughs> to paint that like you said with black women being the head of major architectural organizations. So one of the other questions we have for you was, you know, what is your take on the state of black architects today nationally and back to our favorite subject Detroit. As far as black architects in Detroit. Black architects and Detroit were my mentors. You know, black black architects in Detroit were are always 
these um, just, I don't know how to even describe it, just superheroes who really, you know, like I just look look up to. And I feel like Detroit as a whole is currently in the spotlight nationally. Like you go to any conference, somebody's talking about work that they've done or work that they want to do or something that needs to happen in Detroit. It's a trendy topic. Uh, I think Black architects in Detroit are not acknowledged as they should be. Black architects in Detroit don't get the national credit that they deserve. I think that locally, the city, uh, like it's, it's doing its part now to like to do that. And especially with Noir Design Party, now that they have this information that they can look at and celebrate and learn about and things that they didn't know about uh, the People Mover and just all the projects here in the city that had um, Black architects working on them. The platform that UNESCO has shined on on Detroit. So just from a national perspective, uh, I think the story is important and it's celebrated. It's not celebrated enough, but I think there are a lot of projects that are that are taking place here that should have more Black architects leading. You know, there's there's Rainey's office. There's there's a lot of new firms out there now. Yep, starting. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I I think it's on it's it's on the way to just being elevated to to where it should be. And from a national perspective, you just really can't deny how how awesome and beautiful the architecture here is in Detroit just alone, um, especially historically. But from the national perspective, black architecture in Detroit should have much more shine than than you get. You mentioned four hundred floors. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization, um, what you're doing with that now, and how people can find out more about it. So, um, it wasn't. It's it's just important for me to be the face that I was looking for growing up, and I realized that when I was working on Brewster Douglas, that uh, there's just the, the the people who use those faces. Me being one of them, growing up that way switching sides of the table to now being uh, someone in the industry, went from a user of those types of spaces to now designing them and building them or demolishing them or whatever. Where where are those voices? And I remember looking behind me and I saw the residents of the old Brewster Douglas across the street. They're now like displaced over there in the one that was rebuilt for them, you know? And so I think that's when I realized I wanted to just start looking into like where are the where are the black people in architecture? Why are there so few? Uh, four hundred four was named after the four hundred black women became a licensed architect, and at that time it was four hundred out of one hundred and nineteen thousand or something like that. And obviously, it's four hundred of all time. It's not four hundred of the last ten or twenty five years, but it's like of all time. And, and mm-hmm. I, was, I was devastated by that. So. Uh, where are the next 400 going to come from and what can I do to find them? How can I support them? How can I help them um, learn about what we do and make sure that they are not finding out about architecture in the 12th grade? You know, so I went after an, uh, a Knight Foundation grant uh, where the focus was using art excellence to just celebrate STEM related fields is what, you know, like I wanted to do with 400 Florida and focus on girls. So that's really how it started for me. Just, I, I wanted to, after I won that grant, I launched uh, 400 Florida with that 50K that I won and was able to match that. And I'm able to pay for 
licensure exams. I'm able to pay for resources to study. I'm able to pay for scholarships for girls who are graduating from high school and, and need laptops and, you know, how expensive architectural supplies are. You know, where are we mm-hmm. going to get that you money? Know, it tells you that when you're applying the architecture. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's like, I... It just brings me so much joy to be able to call someone up because I was I was a juror for the AIA foundations, um, the, their foundation, their 501c3 is the um, the Architects Foundation. And they have the Pettigrew Scholarship where people send in applications for uh, coverage for their exams. And there are a lot of black women and, and black people who are applying, but they can only select so many. And so all the black women who were not selected I decided that I would still give them each a scholarship. But, you know, most of them, like I would say most of them, like they gave to 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 the black applicants and many of them black women. But the ones that didn't get it should should got anyway. So for the past three years, the ability for me to be able to pick my phone up and dial someone's number and say, I want to pay for your licensure exams. It just fills me up. It brings me joy to be able to do that. I know that that's my purpose. I'm just glad to be able to like be in a position to even do that and you're and you're helping us move towards that doubling of architects in 2030 so that is amazing yeah. to and just if i could be the person holding that door open and providing some access like the access that i was missing that's that's what i know my calling is you know and, yeah. and that's why i just love I, i'm really i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing y'all that's really i get all these accolades of people like i'm so proud of you and oh my god I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I'm supposed to, I I need to be doing this, you know? So your impact on the profession is not just buildings, not just the structures, but the people who you're impacting. That's huge. I know how to look at it that way, but you're right. You're changing systems. Everybody talks about systemic racism all the time, but Mm -hmm. helping to change the systems that lets and open the door and makes it a little bit easier for somebody else. Is, is definitely moving the needle. I know that even though it was hard for me to fight my way out of that box of being a student, there were people at Hamilton Harrison that cared about my professional development and they mm-hmm. spoke up for me and said, we want Tiffany to start doing red lines. We want Tiffany to start doing field reports. I've been called into conference rooms and said and told that you're not focused enough. You're not checking your work. You can't work on a project like this way. So you need to get your act together. And like th- these are people who mentored me and they, and I know that that's just something that I have to do. I, I, the things that I've learned from my mentors, I need to pass on. I need to share. And sometimes like when you're, you're just in these, these careers and you don't have the guidance that you need, you just, you can't be, how, how do you, how are you successful? How can you be what you can't see? You know, that, that's, I learned that from the Michelle Obama, who I met, who hugged my, my body. <laughs> She kept her arms around me at the AA conference a couple years ago. Um, yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> and so it's it's just important to to be that mentor. And um, if I had not had that, and it's just kind of people telling me what to do and how to do it, I I didn't have that growing up. You know, I I didn't have any career guidance in architecture growing up. So. There's one memory that I, I have in particular that I, I knew that I wanted to do construction management. And so I wanted to get my master's in construction management. And Rainey said, you can't become a licensed architect if you have a master's in construction management, having a bachelor of science. You need a master's of architecture to get with that. 
mm-hmm. you can still do construction management and you can still be like stock tech, you know? And so had he not told me that I would have not had a master of architecture, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, he's the only person that told me that. Mm. That And have he not been there for me, like, you know, had I not had mentors who were there leading and guiding me at that time, there just wasn't any like the, the amount of resources that are out there now that tell you about the path to licensure. Uh, mm-hmm. It just did not exist back then. So yes, Kurt, that's true. I do still struggle with my path to licensure. I am still on the path to licensure. But, you know, I, along the way, like I don't see that stopping me from helping others on their path. Right. Um, well, some people feel like I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing with 400 forward or you, you can't, you know, be, be on this national platform and be great. Cause you're giving me impression that you don't have to be licensed to be awesome. And that's you don't have to be licensed to be awesome, but you want to be licensed. That, I mean, I, <laughs> you, that's not my intention to, to give, give people the idea that you don't have to get licensed. You know, that's, that's not my intention, but Apparently, that's what some people... Everyone's path is not the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody doesn't travel the same path. So you are following, you know, the way that you feel you should go and the way that you are led. And again, you are impacting so many other people before you get licensed. We're not going to say that you're not going to be licensed. licensed. Before before. This is the the BC part. Just think about what you (laughs) should do once you do get licensed. Right. Uh, you know, I I I see myself. I I never wanted to have an architecture firm. I just ne- I was never one of those people. That's I said that. Be careful. I said that too. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think that's that's something that's out there. Where people like expect you to want that, and you don't have to do that. You can go and do association management. You can go to construction management. You can do all kinds of design with these degrees and. I know that to be a successful firm owner, I should be licensed. You know, if I really want, because I have a lot of friends who are not licensed and they have these firms and they're missing out on, you know, the money that they want or projects that they want because they, they are not licensed or they have to partner with someone who's licensed. So I, I've seen all scenarios. I know how it all goes. I understand it. I know what I need to do. I know what I can and cannot do. I know um, I get to a ceiling without being licensed in a firm. If I was to get licensed now and then go back to the firm I was at, I, I, there wouldn't be any reason why I wouldn't just shoot up the ladder there, but, or, or anywhere. So I know the potential that I have with that credential. I know it's important to be in, be in that number and be counted in that number. And, um, it's a goal. It's a a goal for you. It is. It is. That's that's all. That's all that matters. It's a goal for you. It is. And, and I'm gonna go back to your first statement. I am somebody. (laughs) (laughs) you are somebody and i can see that you're gonna be a licensed architect you just on your way thank you so on your way (laughs) so we don't want to hold you up we have kept you and we do appreciate your time and your conversation today with us thank you so much tiffany great conversation thank you thank you for reminding me that i am somebody and reminding me about (laughs) you know things that my experiences uh, are for a reason, and the thing, the, the the journey that you know has been my life is being watched and and um, listened to. So, to be a part of your um, 
podcast and to be a part of Noir Design Party is very meaningful for me because of my relationship with both of you. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. Really you. Appreciate that. Love you too. too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E, we really would appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone else who would love it too, please share it with them. If you're looking for more content like this, Hidden in Plain Sight is part of the Gable Media Network. You can find similar shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before you go, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the contributions of our upcoming contemporary and trailblazing architects. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just taking it day by day, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives.